Welcome to the Turfgrass Hotline, brought to you by our partners at Dryject, the only machine that aerates top dresses and amends in a single pass. And our partners at Intelligro, manufacturers of Civitas, a fungicide that's so much more. Welcome to the Turfgrass Hotline. Professor Lee Miller from the University of Missouri writes this wonderful turfgrass disease report. And if you're not familiar with it, I'd encourage you to go to his website. We're going to talk about that at the end, Lee. But one of the things you picked up on right in the beginning of the season was this idea that Pythium was coming on early and a lot of people were surprised about it. Can you talk a little bit about that early Pythium? Sure. And good morning, Frank. Thanks for having me. So we incurred in this region, at least in Missouri, we had the wettest May on record. So we commonly associate, and we still kind of are stuck in this thought process that Pythium only occurs when it's June, July, and August, and our pants are sticking to our legs because of all the sweat. But really, when it comes to these root diseases, my adage is all they really need is a pool to swim in, particularly early on this year and, and earlier in May. We had a number of samples that came in, bentgrass, punting green samples, that had pythium root rot and actually had some pythium root dysfunction in them as well. You can tell the pythium root dysfunction because they have a different looking O-spore or bisporous O-spore. So I think what we're having is, is a combination there. But the soils are what temperature, Lee? Well, the soils at that point were probably somewhere around 60 to 65. So not stressful. No, not at all. But it also comes, and I think this is important, that that infection process is occurring before we ever see stand symptoms. And with it being so wet and definitely cooler than it was last year, you know, if you were kind of just looking at the surface and and looking at those putting greens, you were thinking that everything was just fine and and they were green and they were responding to nitrogen and and everything was just uh, happy-go-lucky. But underneath, you know, that that Pythium is, and I use the adage, kind of acting like a ninja, uh, it's stealthily taking down those roots and really ruining that spring investment that you need to get through that summer stress period. Well, I'm a, I got to say, Lee, I'm a little surprised about how widespread not only you're saying Pythium was, but we've certainly heard it throughout the Mid-Atlantic and the Northeast with the wet conditions, as you've said, the pool to swim in. We've certainly had that. But don't we use a fair amount of phosphites, and shouldn't phosphites be helping us with control? Well, phosphites, uh, although they're mobile, and they're one of only two fungicides that are mobile, the phosphites aren't really going to get down into the root zone. And and it's important to realize that we're not talking about pythium foliar blight here. Mm -hmm. We're talking about soil-borne pythium and pythium root rot and pythium root dysfunction. So phosphites aren't really going to get down there. Unless they're put on in a drench. Exactly. Okay. Now, there is some research that says that Signature and, and some of these phosphites are going to help with it, but they're definitely not going to be a big preventative. They're not going to get you out of the woods when it comes to these root diseases. So is part of the problem that the industry is not used to putting on preventative pythium in April? I absolutely think that's true. Huh. At least the superintendents out here and the golf courses that have been successful with Pythium root control, they've started it earlier. So here we're talking about maybe the end of April, beginning of May, when we get those major rainfall events and when that pool starts occurring. That also is, again, that time when you really need to protect that root investment really get those roots down so that you can get into where you're going to get to that physiological decline during our summer stress periods. So one of the things we do here in the Northeast, and I'm sure you do it there if you have any sort of take-all patch or any of the ectotrophic root-infecting fungi, 
that you're doing an early spring drench at a certain temperature and timing as, you know, guys like Bruce Clark have shown over the years for summer patch and take all patch. And I think some also do some early season fairy ring drenching in the Northeast as well as if, if they have a history of that. Is this an additional drench or will any of those drenches help with this? Unfortunately, Pythium is not a fungus. So the most effective fungicides for Pythium normally don't translate over to control for fairy ring or for the patch diseases. So the QOI fungicides, the strobilurins, things like azoxystrobin, insignia or pyroclostrobin or fame, those will give you some Pythium control, but they're not that heavy hitter. So the heaviest hitter that we have on the market now is Cyazofamid or, or Segway, and those are the kind of drenches that, particularly if you have a history of Pythium root disease, that need to start early right along with those patch diseases. Superintendents will ask me, well, what fungicide don't I water in during the spring? And I'm pretty hard-pressed to tell them which one not to water in right. because, again, protecting those roots is, is so very important to protecting that investment. Yeah, and and I've I've tried to stress, you know, I've chatted with Jim Kearns about this and Paul Koch about this, and all you pathologists are pretty much convinced that, in general, we're just not watering products in uh, as much as we could, and that's why I like to use the word drench. Now, listen, uh, I want to move on to the next issue of the year, warm season grass issue, where it looked like you were waiting and waiting and waiting for the zoysia to come out of winter, and lo and behold, it had its problems. So you want to talk about the zoysia issues? Yeah, we were waiting in vain, <laughs> Frank. <laughs> as the clash would say. Unfortunately, this was the biggest winter kill event on zoysia that I've seen, it, definitely in my time here. And, you know, you ask some of the other old-timers, and, and they haven't really seen it either. Meyer zoysia grass is planted in this state pretty much wall-to-wall on fairways, there are some newer varieties that are coming out, Innovation, one out of Kansas State. But for the most part, we plant Meyer here because it is so winter tolerant and it makes it through what can be our brutal winters. We've gone through the polar vortex. Meyer survived through that, that 13 and 14 year. But this year, what we had was wet combined with cold. Mm. And we had a number of freeze-thaw events where ice was sitting on zoysia grass and you were getting those anoxic conditions. So I think that we've kind of learned through this year that desiccation might not be the big killing point for zoysia grass when it comes to winter kill. It might be this anoxic conditions where we have a saturated condition. And really, this occurred all throughout our winter. So we got snow and thaw and, and everything was wet. And then April and May really tagged on to that. Again, we had the wettest May on record. Very little sunlight, very little chance for that zoysia grass to kind of bounce out. Mm. We did this research project where we looked at trying to top dress, put some sand on and maybe elevate some heat and dry things out. We put fertilizer applications on, and then we added pigments, and we put it all in this big factorial design. Hmm. And it turns out no matter what you do to dead zoysia grass, it remains dead zoysia grass. <laughs> well, at least you confirmed that. Yes. Now, there were some folks that were out, and they were routinely, and again, this is anecdotally, but they are routinely top-dressing zoysia fairways. Hmm. And anecdotally, they were having less winter kill than others. Maybe crown protection. Perhaps, again, this might come back to that being able to dry out that root system a little bit better. So I think that's an area of focus we need to, to look at it for research going forward. 
top dress and fairways for bent grass I know is done throughout the country just to improve hardness and surface and drainage and things like that. But perhaps this is something we need to look at on, on zoysia grass and perhaps even Bermuda grass as well as far as maybe being an avoidance tactic for a winter kill. Yeah, it's so interesting to hear you talk about this because, you know, especially for guys from the north that don't get to see a lot of zoysia grass, you can't appreciate how devastating this is because, as you just said, zoysia grass doesn't recover. At least annual bluegrass will reseed itself and eventually you'll have a surface again. But you just stare at dead zoysia most of the year or has any of it now recovered come the end of the season? Not really. You're correct. I mean, zoysia grass really will will creep along, and and Bermuda grass will jump back in. But zoysia grass does have a tough time for recovery once it goes down. So we have areas on our turf grass research farm where we incurred some significant winter kill damage, and it's not coming back. Uh, I was able to show it off during field day, which was just last week, which is is not really great for zoysia grass. And it's very odd because last year was a perfect zoysia grass year. Everybody was raving about the quality of their zoysia grass fairways, and then we really bonked out, and and the zoysia grass took it on the chin over winter this year. Yeah. So I'm sure at field day, uh, one of the things I know you're going to have at the end of July and early August is a a fair amount of brown Patch, Rhizoctonia solani, I would assume it's predominantly, and you have it uh, not just because of golf turf, but you also have a fair amount of tall fescue in the landscape that gets brown patch as well. So if your weather's been anything like our weather, wet and now hot and wet, you know, it's just soup. It went from red thread to dollar spot to brown patch to pythium blight. So it's it's been one foliar disease after another. Did anything surprise you about the brown patch this year? Was it able to be controlled or was the pressure so severe that even the fungicides are breaking down? Have we gotten to the point where if you just don't have a resistant variety, you just can't spray your way out of it anymore? No, I don't I don't think that's the case at all. Here in in Missouri, about 85 or 90% of our home lawns are tall fescue. That species has a big environmental impact particularly when we talk about in, in cities where we've got kind of the concrete jungle there. So they're all tied to our waterways. So I, I've been really interested in, in tall fescue maintenance and, and trying to keep it sustainable. Brown patch hit us this year very, very early, of course, because of the, the wet May conditions. But when it got into June, it was very, very severe. Now, we actually have, have not had, luckily, the conditions that have gone on in the mid-Atlantic and northeast We've kind of given you the heat that we had last year. So in July, it really tapered off with some natural fungicide where we had some some nighttime temperatures that finally dipped into the lower 60s and and even one night in the high 50s. But during that June period, we had some pretty severe brown patch outbreaks and into about the second week of July when it finally tapered off a little bit. One thing that I find interesting is that folks will ask me, well, does brown patch really kill the tall fescue? We've had some pretty good recovery just naturally from some of the inoculations that we've done and, and also some of the brown patch that's been out there. But what it really does is it thins out that canopy enough to where other weeds can come in, mm. and in particular, you know, crabgrass and, and other weeds. So, But when it comes to spraying your way out of it, really we look at a zoxystrobin, and that has been a, a really good one for us curatively and preventatively. There's actually a new homeowner fungicide, Scott's disease EX, that has this oxystrobin in it. New this year, and, and we're testing it to compare its efficacy with the standard commercial-grade fungicide. All right. As we wrap up, let's talk bent grass. That's what the golf guys are struggling with right now. 
and you reported some etiolation uh, in bent grass. And then, of course, uh, you've already used the word uh, once before, but the bent grass bonking uh, and sort of really collapsing looks like it's going on as well. So let's talk a little bit about etiolation because guys are reporting this all over the place. And I've read much of Joe Roberts's work and, and certainly a little bit of, of uh, Joe Vargas's work uh, in this area with a set of vorax. And I guess there's a, a weak relationship or at least a, a, what I would call a sort of a mild relationship with primo use. But, you know, overall, I don't know that we figured much out about it. Uh, what kind of light can you shine on the etiolation issue? Well, you know, when we saw it, it was just maybe one or two samples that came in in early July and, and late June. And really, for us, it depends on what the weather does. So if we start seeing it and, and the weather kind of stays up in that 90, 95 degree range, this bacteria is one that really likes to grow in high temperatures. Um, and one of the ways we identify it is you actually can put it in 37 degrees C, which is very hot in, in the 90s, and we actually incubate it at that temperature. And it's one of the few bacteria that will, will grow, plant pathogenic bacteria anyway. Hmm. What we find, though, is that it kind of will curtail off on us particularly if we stop doing things like use a whole lot of growth regulators. So that connection to Primo, we've actually kind of sparked it by doing that. We applied it in, in really hot temperatures. We applied an, an eighth, which is normal, and it, it kind of just busted out on us. And then we curtailed that off, and it kind of went away. Primo and, and ammonium sulfate are a combination that normally, at least in a lot of the reports and from what I've seen also, might actually spark this off. My recommendation has been, okay, if you see this, it doesn't happen every year, probably, again, anecdotally with the advent of some of the action products that perhaps it's, it's kind of curtailed some of that somewhat. But if you see it, just lay off the Primo. If you still need the growth regulation, perhaps switch to Cutlass or trim it for a little while, and then you can go back when we get back out of that cycle of, you know, highs, particularly high temperatures in the 90s. But particularly, I think also it's those minimum temperatures that'll spark it off as well, at least from, from us when I start seeing the samples come in. When we have high temperatures that stay in the 70s, particularly almost get up into the mid-70s with high humidity, that normally really pops off the etiolation samples for us at least. So does that etiolation sometimes lead to bent grass decline? Sometimes it does, and particularly if those temperatures, I call them the, the high lows, mm -hmm. if those nighttime temperatures don't get out of the 70s, that's normally when we'll see it stress out the plant enough to, to get into a decline situation. But that doesn't really happen every year and really hasn't happened to us since the year of 2011-2012. All right. Well, let's wrap up with the bent grass bonking. It's your latest edition of your turf grass disease report. What do you mean? Yeah, so we just came off of the week where we had the highest number of sample submissions. Of course, by Murphy's Law, that would have to be the week right before field day when we're trying to get ready for that. But we had, a, you know, 10 samples come in, and, and it almost came in perfectly of how we kind of look at these samples. So about 7 out of 10 of these samples, I would say, is just physiological decline. There really wasn't anything else from a pathogen standpoint that was going on in these samples. And it's really this terrible pattern of organic matter. So we've got the roots that naturally are going to decline. They're going to contribute to this organic matter. The organic matter is going to hold the water. The battle sunshine is going to heat up that water that's being held in that top inch of that root zone, and you're basically going to have a situation where you have boiling roots. Yeah. You know, also and particularly with the, the high humidity that we've been running, we get into this wet wilt situation where there's enough water in the profile 
for transpiration to occur, but the plant just isn't able to do it through a lack of root function and then also what's going on in the atmosphere. Um, so I call that soggy hot root syndrome, uh, SHERS, and, uh, and that definitely was occurring, you know, and, and probably was something that, that even started in May. Checking drainage, I think, is, is hugely important. You know, we, we look at TDRs and that volumetric water content, and, and that is a great tool. Don't get me wrong. I, I definitely recommend those and knowing what that number is that you're going for. But I also think that that three-quarter inch soil core, you know, there's a reason why that thing is so long. And every once in a while, I would like for superintendents to go out and really lean on it and get down all the way to that pea gravel layer and really investigate what's going on, not just in that top two or three or four inches where your roots are hanging out, but also what's going on down below. Because if you're not moving water out of the bottom and out of the drainage of that green, you're not going to be able to grow a, a good root system. And particularly, you can have black layer and anaerobic bacteria set up at the bottom, which would kill from the bottom up. Yeah, and also the iron caking that Bill and Glenn and Doug uh, stumbled upon a number of years ago. Listen, Lee, we're out of time already, but I want to give you a chance to uh, get some more business into the lab. Can you give me some information about how people can send you a sample? Certainly. If you go to the website, turfpath.missouri.edu, you can sign up for the updates that you talked about. That's an email subscription. And you also can go down and, and get a link to the form, which will have a form. Fill that out, please, as much as possible. Also, I will reiterate what Lee Butler at North Carolina State said. Take a picture. Take a couple pictures of symptoms, particularly as they occur around the green or around the turf area. That assortment of, of knowing how those symptoms kind of occur across the landscape will help us with a sample diagnosis. And then there's also sampling instructions on that second page and, and how we want those samples to be sent in so they're in the best shape possible for us to make a good diagnosis. Thanks a lot, Lee. Lee Miller, professor at the University of Missouri in Columbia. Lee, thanks for taking the time to join me. Thank you, Frank. Anytime, buddy. And thanks to our partners at Dryject, the only machine that aerates top dresses and amends in a single pass, and Intelligro, manufacturers of Civitas, a fungicide that's so much more. I'm Frank Rossi. Thanks for joining us. 